religious person. And we see that Jesus condemns this. It's, it's condemned. And we see it in verses 45 and 46. Now keep in mind, the, uh, the religious leaders have been coming after Jesus. And he returned fire last week with that important question about how can uh, David's Lord be David's son? They had no answer for that. In verse 45, it says, In the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes. Now, that's uh, quite a statement when you consider the scribes were the most respected people in the culture. He's telling them, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feast. Now, the scribes aren't addressed directly. Here are they. He's speaking to the disciples, but it's very likely that they hear What Jesus is saying, they seem to hear everything he says. Um, It's almost like an open rebuke to the scribes, but in a more subtle way. He's using this as an opportunity uh, to disciple his disciples. And the reason he does this is that he knows that the religion of these leaders is the default mode of the human heart. When we're doing religion, if you will... Without gratitude, without grace, um, without the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, this is exactly what we are displaying in our lives, the kind of religion we see here with these scribes. Now, who are the scribes? The scribes were the trained theologians. Uh, They were the paid professional teachers, okay? And these guys would study for years and years, and then they would become teachers, and they would become judges empowered to make binding decisions for the people concerning um, legal issues and moral issues and religious issues. Uh, Now, this is the 11th time we've seen the scribes mentioned in Luke. So they're a very important group that we see addressed in the gospel. And it's not going to be the last time we see them. They're going to play a very instrumental role in Jesus' arrest and subsequent um, crucifixion. To give you a little insight on these guys, now there were exceptions. Uh, In Matthew 2, when the Magi, the wise men, come looking for the one who was born king of the Jews and asking where he would be born, the scribes in Matthew 2 tell them, "The, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. But they don't go with the wise men to worship him. That's quite telling. It it speaks to a a very consistent problem, a consistent sin problem with the scribes. That is, they know, but they do not apply. They do not practice. And they were very zealous about their knowing. Do you know that you can be really serious about Bible knowledge and theology and not love God? All right, that's where the scribes were. But because they were very religious, because they were very zealous, the average man on the street was very impressed with the scribes. I mean, they, had, they, they were held in the highest esteem because of their, their uh, religious uh, faithfulness, because of their morality, because of their knowledge, okay? And here Jesus is saying, beware of them. Why? Because they cared more for their honor than God's honor. And that's a very serious offense. Because Jesus, as we see here, is harder 
on the religious leaders, on these religious people, than he is anyone else in the Gospels, including the prostitutes and the tax collectors. And he's going to lay out six criticisms towards these people. And then he's going to conclude that uh, list with a horrific warning of condemnation to come towards them. Notice the six-part criticism in verse 46. They like to walk around in long robes. Um, they wore these expensive, very fancy robes that, that, that made them look um, uh, imminent in uh, their, their sphere of influence. Perhaps that's, that mentality is what birthed this idea that I heard growing up. I've not heard it here, uh, so I'm not criticizing us, but I did hear this growing up. You need to dress in your Sunday best because God loves uh, or God deserves our Sunday best. Where did you find that in the Bible? Uh, that is just not there. That's uh, Proverbs 32. Um, uh, and, and some of those people who say that, well, what does the best look like? You know, your best may be a pair of blue jeans or um, I, I just never understood that. And some of those people are the meanest people you'd ever find on the face of the planet. But God deserves our Sunday best. And it just reminds me of these guys here. But secondly, notice... Uh, it says that they love greetings in the marketplaces. They love to be acknowledged as rabbi, as doctor, okay? Uh, they, they loved attention, okay? And they love to be esteemed. Um, thirdly, it says they love the best seats in the synagogues. Now, this has already been addressed in chapter 11. In chapter 11, this Pharisee uh, foolishly invites Jesus into his home, if you'll remember, and uh, by the time he's done, he regrets it. Back in chapter 30, uh, 11, verses 39 and 40, uh, it says, Jesus said to these Pharisees, you cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Um, there he's critiquing this idea that you can actually honor God uh, with this outward conformity, without love, without gratitude, without a heart that marvels at the goodness and the glory of the living God. And then he pronounces six woes, all right? And one of those woes was on this very thing that we see here where he uh, denounces this, this tendency they have to love the best seats. Fourthly, it says he, they love the places of honor at the feast. Um, honor was a big deal in that culture, all right? In fact, um, commentators tell us that the blessing of honor was the most coveted thing among religious people of that day. In fact, um, Plutarch, the, the Greek historian, famously wrote a book in the first century called How to Seek Praise inoffensively how to seek praise inoffensively uh, there's a new term that's been coined today in our culture uh, the humble brag okay it's a humble way of sparking those to praise you and you see that often in the tweetosphere if that's a correct term um, <laughs> even among pastors um, and so they desire forth this um the places of honor at feast. We, we saw him deal with that in chapter 14. 
as another Pharisee invites him into his house. Um, you know, this public parading of our religion is a perennial issue, isn't it? It's a, it's a perennial temptation of outwardly religious people. Religious people who are not walking in the grace of God. Religious people who are not empowered by the Spirit of God. Um, what matters in those cases is public reputation, not private piety. And what makes this so difficult um, is that this human condition has not changed. It hasn't changed at all. In fact, we're guilty of this when we uh, seek and are driven by self-promotion. When we are trying to make a name for ourselves or we exaggerate our uh, accomplishments or we're motivated by praise. Uh, we are no different than these, uh, these religious people. And for you unbelievers that are here today, uh, oftentimes you hear from unbelievers, I, I don't want to have anything to do with Christianity. It's just filled with hypocrites and hypocrisy. And I would say to you this morning is that you are critiquing a parody of Christianity. Uh, that's not Christianity. You see Jesus taking on that very issue. Christianity is not hypocrisy. It's not just some outward religion. It's religion that is motivated from the inside out. It's provoked from the inside as one is captured and melted by the grace of God. And so if you hate hypocrisy, be of good cheer. At least on that one point, you are on the same page with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why is this such a problem? Why is this such an affront to Jesus? Because it aims at enthroning God or enthroning self at the expense of God. Let me say that again. It aims at enthroning self at the expense of God. It's, it's a glory eclipse, if you will. We were created to, to magnify God's glory like the moon magnifies the sun. But rather than magnifying God's glory, we eclipse it, okay? And we enthrone self in the place of God the King. Now, there's a word for that. Perhaps you know this word. It's called insurrection. Do you know what an insurrection is? Let me give you a dictionary definition. It's a violent attempt to take control of a government. A violent attempt to take control of a government. You see, God is the king. He's the king over all the earth. And he expresses his kingdom or his rule through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And when you fail to live for his glory and his honor, in a sense, you are eclipsing the very glory and honor of the king for the purpose of elevating self. That's insurrection. Does that sound serious to you? Well, it is. And that's why all sin is condemnable before God, even if it's a good moral act. These people were very good people. They, they were righteous people outwardly. But they were not living for the glory of God. And, and, and so... In a sense, it was an insurrection against God. But he's not done. Notice in verse 47, he says, you devour widows' houses. Now, what does he mean there? Well, no one really understands or knows exactly what he's talking about there. 
Um, but perhaps because they were involved in legal issues as the scribes, they were offering to, um, to help the widows manage their assets while embezzling some of those assets for their own benefit. Whatever it is, they were certainly harming the widows. And we know that pure, uh, true and undefiled religion before God is to visit widows in their time of need, not to harm them. And then, maybe to cover that up, they made uh, these long prayers. He says, for a pretense, they make these long prayers. Um, Jesus is coming after this kind of religion. And for all of this, they have a greater accountability. Notice, this is very fearful. They will receive the greater condemnation. Now, all sinners who do not receive the provision that God has made for sin, which is Jesus Christ, will be condemned. There is a condemnation that falls on those who do not have a substitute to die for them. Because the wages of sin is death. But there are degrees of judgment. We need to recognize that. Remember in chapter 10, he says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the works had been, that have been done among you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. Therefore, it will be more tolerable for them in the judgment. Now, we don't know exactly what that means, but it appears that there are more severe judgments that await for those who have more revelation. And James 3 tells us that teachers and those who study the word of God for a living have greater accountability. It's a very fearful warning here. Now, at this point, there's going to be a, a change of focus. And I think there's an intentional connection with this passage and the one uh, to follow in chapter 21. And I think the connection is twofold. First of all, it's temporal. Jesus is telling these, is, is speaking uh, to the disciples about this uh, hip, hypocritical and self-righteous religion. And so it's topical or temporal. But notice as well, it's topical because he's going to move from um, the kind of religion that eclipses God's glory to the kind of religion that magnifies God's glory, magnifies his worth. And so in the first portrait, we see self-serving religion condemned. And in the second portrait, in 21, 1 to 4, we see self-denying religion commended. Look with me in verse 1 of chapter 21. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. Now, keep in mind, the, the offering box, there was probably 13 boxes, they say there. And they didn't have... Uh, Paper money like we do. Uh, it would have been these large coins that would have clanked in the box. And the rich would have had a lot of those coins, okay? And so they're putting those coins in the box. And it's very evident that they're very benevolent, okay? It, he's, no doubt he is critiquing their motives here. And he saw them putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small Copper coins. Psychologists have coined a term today called ethical behaviorism. Uh, ethical behaviorism. Uh, it's used to describe the idea uh, where a person's righteousness 
is defined strictly in what he does or doesn't do. Okay? And so if a person does good in moral acts or does not do immoral acts, that's someone who's considered righteous and ethical. Uh, there's no uh, concern about the motives of the heart, okay, or the condition of the heart. Uh, well, uh, these people were the original ethical behaviorist, okay? And Jesus' view of righteousness goes much deeper. Uh, in contrast to these wealthy who are obviously um, putting in money in order to have their backs padded, in order to be praised... You have this widow, this poor woman, who comes to the temple and, as we will see, gives all. Do you know that Jesus is observant? Uh, he, he takes note of everything. Nothing gets past him. Um, he takes note of our actions and he takes note of our motives. All right? Jesus, the Son of God, knows your motives. He knows my motives. He knows uh, the motives that are sinister in my heart, even when I get up to preach. He knows the motives of the heart. He takes note of everything. He takes note of everything done on earth. And um, even the lives of obscure nobodies, like this widow. He notices obscure people like this widow just as much as he knows is, notices kings and princes. He, he knows and notices small churches like Fisherville as much as he does the mega churches, okay? Uh, the mega churches that are better known in our culture. And I think widows here should also be encouraged. Oftentimes, and I've heard this testimony of widows, when their spouse dies, they just feel life as they know it is over. They feel marginalized at times, Okay? And yet here in this passage, we've already seen that Jesus is concerned about the mistreatment of widows. And here, he is taking note of a widow who is giving sacrificially, even if it appears she doesn't have much to offer. Notice it says she put in two small copper coins. The Greek word there is lepta. Uh, it's L-E-P-T-A. Okay, so she put in two lepta. Uh, one lepta was worth one 128th of a denarius. Now, a denarius was a common um, laborer's wage for one day's work. All right? So if a denarius is one day's work for the common laborer, She's putting in uh, two um, of these coins, and one of the coins is worth one 128th of a day's wage. In other words, if you work four or, or ten hours, it would take you four minutes to earn one lepta. Four minutes in a ten-hour working day, and you're just a common day laborer. She's putting in two coins, which means she's putting in eight minutes Worth of work for the common day laborer. In purely financial terms, that doesn't even register. All right? They wouldn't even notice that at the temple. But Jesus' exchange rate is a bit, little bit different, isn't it? Um, 
her offering with him is going to register eternally. Now why? Why does her offering register, but this ri- the rich offering does not? Because her motivation was love. It's very clear. She was living out the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Do you know that when you give, you're loving your neighbor? Because your neighbor has needs. And through giving, mission is done to the neighbor. In fact, he explains why that is in verse 4. Verse 3, he says, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. So the rich are putting in tons of money, but they're giving out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Everything about this woman has been described in terms of less. She's a widow. And she doesn't have much. She's poor, it says. And yet Jesus says she gives more than the wealthy. I mean, that's so countercultural to us. Because Jesus is looking at something more than the bottom line. He's looking at the degree of self-sacrifice and self-denial and our motivation behind that self-denial. Note it says in verse 4, she... She gave all she had to live on. Think about this. If she'd just given one of those coins, she'd still be given 50%. Anybody in here give 50%? I don't give 50%. Um, She would have given more than most people give to the Lord. How different the rich in the text here. The rich are giving a lot. The the rich here are are the kind of members... Uh, pastors like me like, okay? Because they can, they can really impact the bottom line, okay? They can really impact the budget. But they were given out of their abundance. You know what that means? They were giving in a way that did not require the Holy Spirit to empower them. Uh, in other words, if, if the Holy Spirit was not present, they could have still given that much. They were not giving out of faith. What they were giving looked very impressive, but they could have done it without the Holy Spirit. They could have done it with a heart that was not motivated by love and gratitude and the awe of God. And her poverty meant that she was giving in such a way that it in a very real sense, cost her in, t- in terms of life's basics, okay? And she could have said, well, I've got bills to pay. I-, I will put off giving. No, she couldn't help herself. She's giving everything away. It didn't cost the rich. And I think the, the contrast here is very striking and very intentional. And their hearts are different. Now, the point is not that every believer should give everything away. That's not the point. That, that would be bad interpretation there. In fact, uh, more places than not in the New Testament, God's people do not give everything away. God may call you to give everything away, and he has certainly done that in history, but that is not the norm. That is not the point of this text. The point is, when you have experienced the grace of God, it will reflect itself in your giving. That's the point of this text. Because not only... Here's what giving does. It confesses to God 
You're the owner. I'm the steward. I'm the manager. When you don't giving, when you don't give, you are essentially saying, I own it. And it's at my discretion what I do with it. Secondly, you're confessing, I love you more than material things. That's what you're confessing when you give. Thirdly, you're confessing, I cannot outgive you, God. You are Jehovah Jireh. I cannot outgive you. I love you more than anything else. That's what you're confessing when you give. And you're also confessing that you love your neighbor. Because when you give to the kingdom, it impacts your neighbor. Now, I want to close here with just a few summary thoughts as I thought about this text this week. The first thing I want us to consider here is that Jesus notices what's happening in our world. Uh, He's aware of where your zeal is. Note, I didn't say if you had zeal. You have zeal. In fact, every person in here is really zealous about something. And whatever that is, is your God. Okay? You need to understand that. I've had people say to me, I'm just not disciplined. Yes, everybody's disciplined. You're disciplined at pursuing your God. If you sit on the couch eight hours a day and watch television, I can tell you where your God is. It's perhaps your comforts. You're, you're, you're serving yourself maybe, but you're very disciplined at serving your God, okay? And so Jesus is very aware what's going on in our world, and he's very aware where your zeal is. He's aware if your zeal is for his glory and honor, or he's aware if your zeal is for your glory, your honor, or your creature comforts. Um, Jim Brooks told me a story this week about a, a deacon here at Fisher, just kidding, a deacon in Texas. <laughs> and he said that the deacon did not tithe, and here's was his reason. He said, I'm trying to protect my boys from the world, and so I buy them things like four-wheelers to keep them out of trouble. How wrong-headed is that? The way you protect your children is to give them a vision of God. That challenges the claims this culture makes on them. And one of the ways you do that is to show them through your giving that he is worthy. Secondly, our use of our money will be accounted for on the last day. There's a day of judgment coming. There is a day of judgment. And the judge on that day is the same one who noticed the two copper coins going In the bucket. What the King James calls the mites. J.C. Ryle in some very haunting words says. If we prove in that day. That is the day of judgment. The day of accounting. If we prove in that day to be rich towards ourselves. But poor towards God. It would be better had we never been born. Very haunting words, but he's exactly right. Consider this. I read this this week uh, from the Kentucky Baptist Convention. And I did not like what I read. They said a study has shown that older members... Now, they don't define who the older members are. Okay? Uh, Maybe it's retirees. I don't know. Maybe it's those 50 and above. Just, I don't know. Um, 
But older members give 46% of offering plate money, but only account for 19% of membership. Now, that's a sad stat. And then they make this point. Every younger generation gives significantly less than the previous generation. And they describe this trend as a silent tsunami. Why? Not because pastors are trying to get rich and churches are trying to get rich. Church is not a business. But mission, reaching the world for the gospel, requires money. And if every generation is giving less than the previous generation, not only does it reveal we've bought into the American dream, it reveals we don't really have a same burden that Jesus has. And that is to save the nations. I mean, do you know anybody that's ruined their lives because they gave too much to the kingdom of God? I don't think you have. You've met plenty of people who've ruined their lives gambling and, and, and buying stuff so that they can feed their God. But you've never met anyone who's given too much to the kingdom who's ruined their lives. In fact, they live blessed lives. Uh, thirdly, when it comes to giving, motives matter. Uh, the rich people here, they gave more, but their motives were self-serving. It's a form of idolatry. It's a, it's a perpetual glory eclipse, if you will. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13? Very important passage about love. He says, if I give everything away and have not love, it benefits me not. Okay? Now, here's the question. If you can't give cheerfully, and Paul says God loves a cheerful giver, do you just determine I'm not going to give until I get cheerful? No, that's wrong-headed. Um, what you do, as you do in any other um, act, when your heart is not in it, is that you give repentantly. You give and you say, Lord... I'm giving here, but my head is ahead of my heart. My heart's not in it. I'm doing it out of duty. There's no delight in it. I'm not trusting you. I'm a little anxious about giving. And I'm not trusting you. And there's things I want more. But I recognize that I, as a believer, should give. And so I also recognize my heart's not in it. So there's, an, there's sin here involved. And I want to claim the blood of Christ. I want to claim the righteousness of Christ for my sinful motives in my giving. And I want to claim the resurrection of Jesus Christ to transform my sinful heart. That's how you do any kind of act that you know you should do, but your heart's not in it. You live in confession and repentance and pleading that God would change your heart in the process. Motives don't matter to the IRS, but they too matter to God. We see this with Jesus here. Fourthly, God does remarkable things with what appears to be tiny offerings. Let me explain here. You think about it. This woman gave two coins, two lepta, two mites, if you will. And for 2,000 years, it's produced more... For the kingdom of God than any other person's giving in the history of the church. 
as, as idolaters and people who do not trust God enough to give read this text. And as they hear it taught and as they hear it preached for 2,000 years, they've been brought to repentance for taking lordship over their finances. They've been brought to repentance for not trusting God to provide. They've been brought to repentance for not loving God enough to give sacrificially. God does remarkable things with tiny offerings. Fifthly, in God's economy, there's no advantage to being rich. There's absolutely no advantage to being rich. And this should be an encouragement to those who do not have the means to give in a budget-impacting way. Okay? Jesus commends this woman who had much less than any of us. Jesus sees more than portion. He sees proportion. And that's important to understand. Sixth, where your treasure is... There your heart will be. Matthew 6, 21. Okay? Let me explain that. Um, Money and giving reveal the state of the heart as few things do. You see, when grace comes down, gratitude will go up. And generosity is going to flow out. Do you think that physician in the video said to himself, oh my goodness, this is the same guy that bailed me out 30 years ago. I've got to, do, I've got to pay his bill. I, I, my conscience will never let go. My conscience will pursue me. I will feel guilty the rest of my life. No, grace had transformed this man. He didn't think twice about it, okay? So when you truly experience grace, and what is Grace. It's a gift that meets you at your point of need. All right? Now, if you don't perceive yourself as needy, there's no making sense of grace. There's no making sense of the gospel. That's the problem with self-righteousness. Why do I need grace? I'm a good person. Are you living for the glory and honor of God? If you're not, you're an insurrectionist. That's not a good person. But when you experience grace, gratitude will be the knee-jerk reaction. And out of that will flow generosity. That is where grace comes. And the object of that grace, the one who gives that grace, will become your treasure. There's no doubt about it. The person who gives you that grace will be your treasure. And where your treasure is, there your heart is. And where your heart is... Your cash flows too. If your heart is in Kentucky basketball or Alabama football for that matter. Your cash is going to flow there. I see it every Saturday in the fall. 100,000 people headed to Tuscaloosa. Where your heart is, your cash will flow too. So just look at your, your, your budget. Seventhly, giving that honors Jesus is giving that costs you. Giving that requires faith, utter faith, requires the power of the Spirit in your life. 
You remember in 2 Samuel 24, you got Araniah the Jebusite who wants to give uh, David this threshing floor so that he can build a, a, an altar for God. He wants to give it to David. You know what David says? 2 Samuel 24, verse 24. I'm not going to offer any burnt offering to the Lord God that does not cost me something. He would not take it for free. He was going to pay for it because he wanted to offer nothing to God that did not cost him. Consider C.S. Lewis's advice here. We're getting close to the end here. He says in mere Christianity, he says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditures on comforts and luxuries and amusements is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. In other words, if you're keeping up with the Joneses as a believer, C.S. Lewis says you're giving too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they're too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. I think it's good counsel. You could say that the widow, in laying down all that she has, is laying down her life. And that's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ is going to do in about two days from now. He's going to lay down his life in Golgotha. And why is he going to lay down his life? Why is he going to die? Well, if we're honest, text like this one reveals we all fall short. We're all more like those religious hypocrites than we really want. We, we, we like to put on a show with our piety. Your pastor is no exception. And if we're really honest... We don't give as much as we could. And we don't give for the reason we should. Okay? That's why we need a Savior. That's why Jesus came to die. In fact, this widow was accepted before God not because she gave. That's works. That is every other religion in the world. The widow... Gave because she was accepted by God. Note the difference. She did not receive acceptance for God because she did these remarkable things and gave everything away. No, she gave it away because she was accepted by God. And what was the ground of her acceptance? The ground of her acceptance was an event that had not even happened yet. It was going to take place in about two or three days from her offering. The ground of her acceptance was the cross. Jesus Christ, some two days after the widow gave everything away, was going to die for the widow's sins. And remember, the believers before the cross looked forward to the cross. They knew a Messiah was coming who was going to die. Isaiah makes that very clear. Genesis 3.15 makes that clear. Where you have the hill of the, the, the seed of the woman who's going to be bruised by the seed of the serpent. Jesus Christ was going to die for this woman's sins. 
She's, he was going to take the wrath for the widow's sins. And for the sins of every single person who would repent of their self-righteousness. Who would repent of their lovelessness. Who would repent of their lordship over their finances. And believe in the Son of God. And because the Savior's way is the way of the cross. If you're truly born again. If you have been saved, one of the real marks of a believer is this growing sense that that will be your way as well. The way of the cross, laying down your life. And it will necessarily reflect itself in how you give. So let us learn from the widow. But let us worship the Savior of the widow. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this text. It challenges us all. We all recognize we fall short.